Well, good evening. I am glad that you're here. It says something good about you, the fact that you are present this evening on a night when you could probably be doing a lot of other things. It tells me that you care about your country, that you're interested in its welfare. And more so, it tells me that you're interested in what the God of heaven would have you to do to make your country a better place. I'm not going to pretend to have all of the answers to that. I'm not going to pretend to tell you everything that you might possibly need to know before you go cast a vote for one candidate or another. But I do think the Bible reveals to us clear principles that will help us make decisions and that will help us be the salt and light that we need to be in this world and in our nation. Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5 told us that as his disciples, we are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. I want to start with that point tonight and I'll end with it. We can make a difference in this world and Jesus Christ expects us to make a difference in this world and in our country to make it something better than it was before we were a part of it. We have an obligation to do that. Now how we go about doing that, uh, what the world has to say about that might be quite a bit different from what I'm going to suggest to you tonight from Scripture. But we can make this world a better place and we can make our country a better, stronger, more godly country by doing the kinds of things that God directs us to do in his book. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, the apostle Peter said that God through his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I believe that God through the knowledge of Jesus Christ gives us everything we need to know to live in this world, to be the kind of people that he wants us to be, and to live successfully in this world. I believe that when it comes to a person's religion or their faith, if it doesn't inform them and help them with day-to-day -day, uh, problems that they face, day-to-day -day questions that they face, from everything from, you know, how should you behave in your workplace, how you should interact with family, uh, what you should uh, be concerned about as far as the politics of our nation or the socioeconomic problems of our nation, the Bible, your faith, ought to inform you about some things at least that will help you make all of those kinds of decisions and choices in your life. If your faith doesn't direct your day-to-day -day life, it's really not worth very much. But I believe that the faith that Christians have, the faith that we have in Jesus Christ and His Word, as is found in the New Testament, does inform us. It does help us. It does direct us. So those are the basic truths that we start with tonight. And I want to start with one other truth. And this we'll end up with at the end of the lesson tomorrow night, if the Lord allows. As a Christian, I am a citizen of the United States of America. But first and foremost, I am a citizen of heaven. And this reality must never leave our focus as we're thinking about our obligations to an earthly government. The government to which I first and foremost owe my allegiance is the government of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 that our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. My allegiance to my heavenly country comes first 
It directs and informs my behavior as a citizen of this country that we call America. However, my allegiance to heaven will make me a better citizen of this country. No nation on earth has anything to fear from Christians who are citizens of that given nation because Christians should make the best citizens of all. The Bible will direct us this way, as we'll see in just a minute. My heavenly allegiance, my allegiance to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, to which I've been translated into by the power of God, into the kingdom of the Son of His love, makes me a responsible and conscientious citizen of my earthly nation. The question that we're asking tonight is, in fact, a puzzling question. The question is, how should a Christian vote? Again, let me be clear, as Greg has already indicated, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm going to point you to Scripture that will tell us what some of the considerations we must take into account are as we go to vote, if we go to vote. I think it's critical that Christians have a clear view of what's really important in this world when they go to the polling place. A clear view that's presented to us in, Bi in the Bible itself. And so this question, I'll, I'll just be blunt and frank with you. How should a Christian vote? I don't think it's an easy question to answer. And as you'll see as we talk tonight, there are complex issues that are involved from a spiritual standpoint when it comes to answering that kind of a question. But let me assure you that there are many principles in Scripture that will guide you and that will help you be able to cast a vote with some confidence that you are doing what your King in Heaven wants you to do. And that's my goal, really, in our discussion tonight. I encourage you, if you've brought your Bible, to follow along with me as I reference Scriptures, to think with me. And that's really our purpose tonight, again, is just to think together about what the Bible has to tell us concerning this most important thing that's happening in our country, that's coming up, as Greg said, a very critical turning point election, perhaps, in the history of our country. Let's start with this fundamental principle, that human government is ordained by God. Turn over in your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 13. And notice the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Notice Paul's words, and I'm going to read the rest of this text in just a couple of minutes. But notice Paul's words. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar back in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21 that the God of heaven changes the times and the seasons and he removes kings and he raises up kings. That's the power of the God of heaven, the God that we serve if we are Christians. When Nebuchadnezzar was lifted up, the king of Babylon of old, and he thought himself to be something and something great among men. God chose to humble him. 
and to make him realize that he was, after all, just a man, and that it was God who was truly in control of all, that God is ultimately sovereign. This is a topic we'll talk about more tomorrow night. But in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 32, Nebuchadnezzar is made to understand that he's going to have to become like a beast and eat grass like a wild animal so that he might be humbled before the God of heaven. He's told from, by a voice from heaven, he, he's told, They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Here's the power of our God. God raises up kings. God takes down kings. God gives the kingdoms to whomever he chooses. And I don't think that this is just something that uh, is indicated in the Old Testament relative to Israel or the nations that directly impacted Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Uh, there is, if you study the Old Testament, there's an indication throughout it that God is dealing in the affairs, the national and political affairs of men wherever they are and whoever they are in order to accomplish His purposes as He sees fit. He is the one who works all things according to the counsel of His will. The one that is thinking so far above us that as the heavens are higher than the earth, we, we don't get it. We can't comprehend what's in His mind or what His intentions are. But you go over to the New Testament and you remember in John chapter 19 that Jesus Christ is standing before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate is amazed that Christ is not answering the charges against him. That Jesus isn't saying something to defend himself. And so he says to him, Pilate does, he says, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus' answer to Pilate on that occasion is extremely interesting and informative. For the Son of God answered and said, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. God has got this world in His hands. And He raises up people in power and He brings them down according to His purposes. Now, in a democratic republic, such as the one in which we live, it's not quite like it was in the days of the kings of old, because every adult citizen in our nation gets to pull a lever or check a box that indicates who they want to rule. But I am a firm believer in this, that God, while He may measure the attitudes of men and the righteousness of a country, He has purposes in mind that we cannot comprehend. And the one who He allows to rise to power will be just that, the one He allows, the one He chooses for His purposes that are beyond our comprehension. All of that, friends and neighbors, get back, gets back to a faith in God. That yes, God can use us for good in this world. Yes, we can make a change in this world according to His will. But ultimately, we're telling, we're, we recognize that it's in the hands of God. And that's such an important 
thing to recognize and to be aware of. Now, with that as, as a little bit of a background, let's go back to Romans 13 for a minute, okay? We started, we read those first two verses in Romans 13. Paul says that we're to be subject to the governing authorities. Authorities that exist are appointed by God. Don't resist it, you know. And then in verse 3, here's what the apostle goes ahead and writes. He says, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. I think verse 3 is very interesting in light of what's going on in America right now regarding, uh, you know, policemen's lives being taken, uh, some lives being taken of innocent people because of the color of their skin, and the back and forth between that. I know all of you are aware of this, have probably been uh, tuned into it and glued to it uh, for some time now. But this particular passage uh, comes to bear on all of that, doesn't it? Because what we're told is that, you know what, if you'll just obey the laws of the land and do what's right, you're not really going to have much to fear from those who are in authority. Now, you might have people in authority who are are, are racist, who might harm a person who's of a different skin color just because they want to do, but I think overall and from this context, that's not normative. What's normative is, what's normal is, that people who are in positions of power just want to keep the peace and keep the order. No nation, no right-thinking government wants con- constant upheaval and violence going on. Any, any nation, even of the, of, the, of the strictest dictator or demagogue in the whole world, they want you know, peace and quiet in the streets and complete order in the streets. And if you comply with that, no matter what nation you're in, you're not likely to have much trouble from the governing authorities. And that, I think, is a principle that could be applied to uh, some things that are going on in the United States. There are lots of, that's very simplistic. There are lots of other things we could talk about. But that's an interesting verse. Let's go on. This minister of God, he's God's minister to you for good. If you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So this really brings me to my my first major point, that because God ordains offices and people to fill those offices in government, Christians owe earthly government subjection, taxes, customs, fear, and honor. If you believe yourself to be a Christian tonight, Whatever government we have in this country, you owe that government these things. And you might look at this and say, well, you know, Paul is writing nearly 2,000 years ago. He doesn't understand how bad things are in America. (laughs) No, he understands a government that was much, much worse than anything we've ever had in America. He's writing this 
at a time uh, when we're very certain that a Roman Caesar by the name of Nero was on the throne in Rome and he's writing to the Romans and he's saying, you be subject to the governing authorities. You be subject to the king. You honor this king Nero who, among other things, is reputed to have impaled Christians, covered them with oil, lit them on fire, and used them to light his garden parties. We need to respect the will of God. God says, honor, fear, pay taxes, give customs that are due. God ordained the government and will ordain whatever government we have next in America. Does that mean we can't do anything to change it? I believe we can do some things to change it. Does that mean we can't do anything to make it better? I believe we must do some things to make it better. But we must do so understanding these initial parameters that government belongs to God Almighty and that His people, of all people on earth, must give government obedience, subjection, pay their taxes, pay the customs that are due, show respect, and show honor. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter stresses some of these very same principles. When he says in verse 13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. You obey the laws of the land, not because you like them, not because they're the best laws that ever were, but for the Lord's sake. Now, the only time there's an exception to that is where the law of man contradicts the law of God. Peter also would say we must obey God rather than man. But other than that, we are to obey the laws of the land, whether to the king as supreme or as to governors, as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. This is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, I want you to notice the parallel in this passage between doing good and obeying the king. That's, that's what is being paralleled here. He tells us to, to obey the, the government, to submit to the king or those who are sent by him, and that that is doing good, to obey the laws of the land. We're free. We make a lot... Uh, you know, out of our liberty in America. Liberty is a freedom is a big thing. We have freedom of this and freedom of that. Yes, we do. And we have freedom, a lot of freedom as Christians as well in a lot of areas. But we shouldn't use our freedom as a cloak for vice. That's what Peter says in verse 16. You're free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. Your freedom doesn't give you the right to do wrong. But you're bondservants of God. And so we come to verse 17, and I want you to listen to this verse very carefully. I was reading on Facebook the other day, and uh, there were a lot of posts that were being made about uh, current things that have been in the news in our country. And a very wise young woman wrote on her post, she wrote this verse, and in essence all she said about it was, this would solve all of our problems. 
want you to listen to the verse. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. In our society, if we applied that across the board, is that not going to solve pretty much all of our problems, societal right now? I believe it would. And I say she's a very wise young woman. She's my daughter, so. <laughs> and I'm thankful she has that kind of wisdom. I, I, I would hope that a lot of us do, who claim to be Christians. The question remains, though, and I know what we're anxious to get to, is, okay, Steve, we're honor the government as ordained. God, we undo all of that. We're going to try to apply 1 Peter 2 and verse 17 and honor the king and, 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 and honor all people to the very best of our ability. Yet still you haven't told us who to vote for. <laughs> well, as I said, I'm not going to. But we're going to look at some principles that will get us there. And we're going mainly first to look at some principles that will help us understand how we as Christians can improve government. Human government can indeed be improved by God's people. And the first thing I want to talk about before we talk about voting is something I, I think may be a, a good bit more important than voting, and it's something that we leave out of the conversation a lot as Christians. And that is we can improve our government, our nation, our society, our entire culture by evangelism, by spreading the gospel. You want to change the world? Teach somebody about Jesus. Teach a lot of somebody's about Jesus. And you just see how the world's going to change. Let's accept the fact that if we really want to change the world, we'll probably be able to do an awful lot more by going to our next-door neighbor and asking him for a Bible study than we will by going to the polls. And until we as Christians understand if we want to make this world a better place, we have the power of it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When it's implanted in the hearts and souls of men, here's what's going to change the world. Here's what's going to change our nation, our community, our neighborhood. It doesn't matter the color of the guy's skin that's walking down the street, what side of the tracks he's from, what his background is. If I make him my brother in Christ, I have nothing to fear. In Proverbs chapter 24, the wise man tells us how not to try to go about changing the government. He says, My son, fear the Lord and the King, and do not associate with those that are given to change. My understanding of this verse and a number of commentators who commentate on it suggests that what's really being said here is you don't change government by revolution. You don't change government by disrespecting authority. That, that's not how you do it. Don't even associate with those who want to try to overthrow a government by violent means or, or by you know, insurrection or something like that. Don't even think about going that direction. Continue to respect the king and the government, you can change it 
as we've said, by telling folks about the way of God. You know, in Mark chapter 13 and verse 9, Jesus is talking to his apostles and he tells them, you're to watch out for yourselves. They will deliver you up to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues and you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. Now, if I would stop there, you'd say, well, yeah, Jesus is telling them, you see, you're going to be persecuted because you're followers of me. But that's not where he's going to. He says, you're going to be brought before rulers and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Here's your opportunity. Here's your big opportunity to change the world. Convert a king. Convert a governor. Convert a ruler. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, Ananias was sent to Saul of Tarsus to basically deliver the Lord's commission to him to be an apostle. Jesus had already spoken to him him on the road to Damascus of him. But he says in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, Ananias, you go, because he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. It was Jesus' express purpose that his apostles should go to the kings, should go to the rulers, and and should make a difference in this world by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those that were at the very top. In Acts chapter 13, verses 6 through 12, there's uh, uh, an account there of the apostle Paul coming in contact with a Roman proconsul by the name of Sergius Paulus. And the text tells us in Acts chapter 13 and verse 12 that the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You'll remember in Acts chapter 26, verses 28 and 29, that the Apostle Paul was standing before the Judean king Agrippa, Herod Agrippa. And he tries to convince him of the truth of the gospel of Christ. He preaches mightily to him. And finally, Agrippa says to him in Acts chapter 26 and verse 28, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today, and there were other rulers there in the court of King Agrippa. And Paul says, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. I'm speaking to those tonight, many of you, I think, are, are truly Christians, and uh, some may be visiting just out of curiosity, uh, but all of us, as I said to begin with, I think have an interest in our nation, the welfare of our nation, and in understanding what God would have us to know to make it a better place. And so I say to you that I'm fairly confident that most every adult in this room knows this story that I just told. But do you see? Do you see what what Jesus is telling his apostles to do? Do you see what Paul is trying to do when he stands before Agrippa? He's trying to save that man's soul. And can you imagine what would happen in a country 
where leader after leader, ruler after ruler, all the way up from congressmen to senators to the president, became a committed follower of Jesus Christ. Your vote could never accomplish that. Your vote could never accomplish what would happen. But the gospel can accomplish it. We need to be sharing the gospel. With this approach, we can make a lot of positive change in this country. The psalmist says in Psalm 119 and verse 46, I will speak of your testimony also before kings, and I will not be ashamed. We write our, our governor and our congressman and our senator and maybe even the president to complain about high taxes or you know, not drilling for oil or the price of gasoline or, or whatever it is, and we're so concerned about all of this stuff and the mess that health care is, and on and on and on we go, and we write our, our, our political leaders and our governmental leaders concerning all of these great concerns of ours. And when was the last time we ever wrote a letter that said, would you consider what I have to say here about the gospel of Jesus Christ? I believe that would make a difference. Imagine it. Just to have a few committed Christians in the household of a president of this nation or a governor of one of the states. You say, well, such is impossible. It can never be done. It's already been done in times past and all the way back to the time of the Apostle Paul. When Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 22, that all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. There were members of Caesar's household. Again, probably Caesar Nero, one of those evil men that ever lived, but he had members in his household who were members of the body of Christ. And as bad as he was as an emperor, I have no doubt it would have been much worse had their influence not been in that family. Let's think about what we can do to make this a better country by spreading the gospel. And then sort of to the meat of the lesson tonight, we can improve our government by encouraging righteousness and opposing evil, not only in the way that we live, but with our vote. There are numerous references to the relationship between the character of leaders and the stability of a nation in Scripture. I know in recent years it's been fashionable to say, well, character doesn't matter. I can tell you that character does matter. It matters all across the board, and it certainly matters when it comes to choosing the leader of a nation. The Bible has a lot to say about leaders of nations and the welfare of nations and the relationship between the two. The Bible has a lot to say, in fact, about, about kings, period. The, the word kings is used over 3,300 times in the Bible. And a lot of those references have to do with kings of nations and how well the nation is doing or going to do 
because of the character of the king. Solomon, who himself was a king, I believe, wrote Ecclesiastes chapter 10. He says in verse 16, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. But blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. When you have men of character, men who care about the welfare of their nation, men who are not in it for themselves, men who are not there to live in extravagance, but are there because they care about their people, then truly a nation is blessed. In Proverbs 29 and verse 4, the text says, The king establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it. In a nation where there's graft and corruption at every level of government, the nation can't stand long. It won't be strong. I was talking to some before we got started tonight. I've done a good bit of travel into third world countries in recent years. Just returned from a trip to Zimbabwe, which is the second poorest nation on earth. Earlier this year, I was in Guatemala. And I can tell you this about those countries and a lot of other third world countries. Graft and corruption are rampant. Leaders often cannot be trusted, you know, as far as you could throw them. <laughs> they can't be trusted. We think we have it bad in America, and it's getting worse. But I can assure you that the character of a leader will very much determine the way a nation goes. That's what these passages of Scripture are teaching us. And so, what does that say to me when I go to vote? Does character matter? These passages say it does, and others that we could look at. Do I need to look at the character of the person I'm voting for? Absolutely. Sometimes I may not have much of a choice there. Sometimes maybe because they're only, you know, we only see their public persona and we don't know how they are in private, we don't really know much maybe about their private lives, sometimes it's hard to make a judgment. But if I can tell, if I know somebody's of righteous character or somebody is not of righteous character, that should inform my vote. That should have something to do with the way I vote. Again, we don't always have a good choice. But when we do, that should tell us something. Righteousness exalts a nation in its citizens and in its leaders. Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. In Proverbs 29 and verse 2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. And I think that recent experience, even in our country, would bear that out. When we go to the polls, when we go to vote, we think then about the character of the person we're voting for. That's important. But we also think about moral issues, issues of right and wrong, and where that candidate stands, if we can tell where they stand, on particular issues of substance, of moral substance. And the first issue that I have listed here is the issue of abortion. In recent years, in the media and in 
presidential campaigns and senatorial campaigns, the issue of abortion has been pushed to the side. We don't hear as much about it as we heard uh, 20 years ago, I think. And I think that's a shame. I'm going to tell you why in just a minute from a biblical standpoint. But I believe that of all of the moral issues that we can, must consider when we go to the polls, this has got to be number one. And here's why. The Bible says, verses like Proverbs 6 and verse 17, that hands that shed innocent blood will not go unpunished. And there is no more innocent blood than the blood of an unborn child. see, all the other issues that we talk about, we, we talk about the problems that we're facing in America right now, the, you know, the, the problems with the police and police shootings and, and race and all of that sort of thing, the, the problems with uh, folks being oppressed, the other kinds of things we, we might talk about in a minute, you know, uh, same-sex marriages, on and on and on. We talk about a lot of different issues. But the thing that all of those issues have in common is that people are making choices for themselves. They're mature adults who have volition, who have the ability to make their own choices. But an unborn child does not. An unborn child cannot speak for himself. And his blood is as pure and innocent as the driven snow. I have lain awake in bed at night in grief and turmoil of my soul to realize that I live in a nation where since the Roe versus Wade decision in 1973 59 million babies have been murdered. The sermon's not a sermon on abortion. But if you, when you go to the polls, don't have that in your consideration, I tell you, my friend, you've lost your moral compass. I'm not a political expert, but I believe that the clearest path to altering this murderous tally of abortions in our nation is to have justices appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States that will overturn Roe versus Wade. And I can tell you that when I go into the voting booth, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about two things. What's the character of the person I'm voting for? And if it's for a president or a senator, will they help Roe versus Wade get overturned by appointing justices and confirming justices who will help us accomplish that? Those aren't the only issues, but those are my two main ones. 
And I believe Scripture would direct us along that line from what we've seen. We can think about other serious moral issues in our society. Same-sex marriage, which has come to the front in the last couple of years especially, and again has now been legalized by the Supreme Court of the United States. Romans 1 has an awful lot to say to us about a culture and a people that would allow such a thing to happen, that would consent even by silence to allowing such a thing to happen. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 26, God gave them over to their vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. One translation there says, God gave them up. How are we going to change the legalization of same-sex marriage in our nation? I think it's the same track as overturning abortion. We're going to have to get justices on the Supreme Court that are going to rule according to godly principles. Respect for God's institution, which He created, which He ordained, and which He loves, the holy institution of marriage. And so let's think about who will the people that we elect to the highest offices in the land, who will they want to have on the Supreme Court of the United States of America, and what will those justices And we may not know the answers to all of that. Sometimes justices have been appointed that, you know, you think they go one way and they went another way. We don't always know. The future is uncertain. But I know that we can vote what our beliefs are and what we think is likely to happen according to the best of our ability. There are a lot of other issues to consider. The general theory of evolution, leaving out God from creation, is taught in our public schools to such a degree that even a rational and logical argument for intelligent design is prohibited in many places today in our science classes in public schools. And sometimes even votes for who's going to be on the school board might make a difference when it comes to that sort of thing. We need to educate ourselves. The problem of gambling, and it is a problem, this isn't a sermon on gambling, but I, I, gambling's a sin. Uh, if you want, uh, Greg, if you want me to come back and preach on a sermon, gambling's a sin, I'll, I'll do that sometime. But gambling's a sin. And you say, well, preacher, the Bible never condemns, you know, gambling. Well, it, it doesn't condemn sniffing crack cocaine either, but it's still a sin, specifically. But the Bible does condemn gambling in principle. Gambling, for a number of reasons, is sinful, the chief of which... It is covetousness gone to seed. And the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, forbids God's people from being covetous. And that's all the gambling is. You take away the money out of gambling, the desire for money, and it wouldn't exist. It would would go away, wouldn't it? 
Somebody says, well, I'm just playing a game, okay? Well, play it without the money. Play it without the desire for that money. And what would happen? It would go away. What does that tell you? Why do people gamble? It's covetousness. That's why. Other considerations when you go to vote. Equity for the poor, the underclass, and as I've mentioned a couple of times already, equity for those of different races. If we think that, again, and this isn't a sermon on that either, but if we think that uh, there's absolutely no concern, uh, no need for us to be concerned about racism, racism in America, folks, we're not, we're not paying attention. Now, now, is there a problem to the degree that some may say? Probably not. Is there still a real problem? Definitely. We just need to admit that. We, me- we need to admit that as children of God, we need to be like Him with this attitude. He's not a respecter of persons, and neither should we be. And He condemns us if we are. But a Christian should stand for fair treatment of all people. Honor, what did the text say we read in 1 Peter 2? All men. Honor all men. Honor them equally. Back in the psalm, Psalm 82 and verse 3 and 4, the psalmist says, Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. Those should be thoughts in our heads as well as we go to vote. We should be concerned with decency standards on our on our cable and broad, broadcast networks and, and what comes over our cell phones and, and, and what can be done to better manage that sort of thing in our society. And if we can elect officials that will make a difference there, we should do so. We could talk about many other moral issues. I think I've talked about the ones that are closest to my heart and the ones I think that scriptures would reflect are the most significant in a society. In such matters, the Christian has an obligation to stand up for what is right. When the Christian votes, issues of righteousness should be the primary consideration that inform and direct his vote. We need to distinguish between issues of righteousness and matters of opinion or indifference. As I said a little bit earlier, a lot of people have got their nose out of joints about, joint about you know, whether or not we're going to drill for oil in America, whether or not we're going to allow fracking, uh, health care plans, environmental issues, uh, economic systems, uh, various economic policies, uh, tax brackets, all sorts of different things. And people get all up in arms about those so- sorts of things. And, and there, there's... I understand all of that is is practical. All of that has meaning in our culture. But those aren't the important things to a Christian. Surely not. Those those are matters largely of differing opinions that are not matters of right and wrong. There may be principles of right and wrong that come to bear on some of those things, but overall not. And we need to understand that. What are we going to be really upset about as people? You know, 
Where are we going to take our stand? What are we going to fight for? And I want to know when I face God in judgment and He looks at my record that surely I stood for something more than whether or not America is going to drill for oil. And what the price of gas is at the pump. We need to distinguish between issues of righteousness and matters of opinion. We can make a difference in our government, in our nation, by praying. And I'll say some more about this tomorrow night. But the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, I exhort therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. We started out talking about the fact that, you know, God raises up kings, God ordains leaders, God, ordain, you know, He's the one who sets up nations and, and brings them down. This world is in His hands. And the prayers of His children make a difference to Him. We talk sometimes about the power of prayer. And I have nothing against that phrase. I use it a lot. There, there's a lot of truth to the idea of the power of prayer. But I want to say that, you know, the power is really not in the prayer. The power is in the one that answers the prayer. The one that we've already established raises up kings and sets them down and appoints government, gover governors at his will. So let's pray for America's strength. Human government can be improved by God's people. As we work to share the gospel, as we pray, as we support righteousness with our votes, you and I can make a difference in this world and in our nation. I am confident of that. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Change this world for the better. Be the change that you want to see. Make the change that you think needs making. I thank you for your good attention tonight.